Welcome to the Analytics Power Hour. Analytics topics covered conversationally and sometimes with explicit language. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's the Analytics Power Hour, and this is episode 229. You know, the saying, nothing ventured, nothing gained, it goes all the way back to, I think, the 1500s, but it actually would take quite a while for us all to really understand what that meant and start the first venture capital firms. That was back in the late 1940s. But now it seems like it's a part of everyday technology life. You know, a startup has an idea. They get venture backing. Eventually, they go get acquired or go public through an IPO. But who are these venture capitalists and how do they decide who to invest in? We thought it might include data, but we wanted to find out. Let me introduce my co-hosts. Hey, Val. Welcome. Hey. Happy to be here. All right. Have you ever uh, venture invested? Yeah, all the time, left and right. <laughs> oh, well, it could, it could be like a. There's lots of people who do angel investing and things like that. And Tim, I didn't expect to see you here today. But welcome. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's great to have you. And, and I'm Michael. Well, so far, none of us are VCs, so we needed a guest, someone with some expertise. Samantha Wong is a general partner at Blackbird Ventures, a venture fund that backs the best Aussie and Kiwi startups, including Canva, Safety Culture, Culture Amp, Zooks, and Halter. She's also a former founder herself and product manager, and today she is our guest. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. We're excited to to chat with you about this. And I, you know, maybe as a starting point, just for, you know, kind of level setting and things like that, sort of be great to hear sort of how you got into the world of venture capital initially, and then we can kind of dive into sort of more of the, you know, some of the data topics that we've got questions about. But yeah, it'd be good, cool to hear your story. I mean, you'll you'll hear sort of a lot of VCs say this, but it was for me, it was like very accidental and non-intentional. So you did mention I was a, I was a founder, so I went through an accelerator program that one of the co-founders of Blackbird Ventures was then running in Sydney in 2014. So I got to know him really well through that process. I took a little bit of money from Blackbird and that accelerator start mate, but was between startup ideas, working on something new, but it wasn't quite all there yet. And so looking at getting a job, and my main goal at that point was to get a job at a startup as a product manager at Series A stage so that when the startup was you know incredibly successful I would I would be you know brushed with that glow a little bit and and people would angel invest just because it was me just because I was the product manager of blah blah startup at Series A because at that point I I really I you know I really felt that that's what I needed for my next startup and um, I was chatting to Nikki about my grand plan. I had a couple of offers on the table and he was like, hey, look, if you're not going to work on your own startup, just come and work for us. Give us two years and we'll back your next company. And I was like, oh, well, that's all I'm trying to really do here anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's what I did. That's how I, I entered VC. It was it was a, a backdoor, I thought, to getting my, my seed round raised. And uh, actually, when I you know, within about three or four months, I just fell in love with, with Blackbird and being employee number one of a team of three and a half people, you, you kind of feel like a founder. And and I really haven't looked back. So that was not, almost nine years ago now. All right. So you mentioned a couple of words I just want to pull out really quick just for foundational mm. purposes is, is series A, seed round. Could you talk through a little bit of like that structure? Because I think we hear sure. that or we read news articles and we're like, what is a series yeah, A? Yeah, What's yeah. a series B? Like, yeah, that yep. that'd be helpful, I think, for listeners. Yeah, and look, the the vernacular changes every few years, which is uh, which is kind of confusing. But essentially, if you think about funding a business, some of these businesses might take hundreds of millions to reach profitability, right? Rather than giving every person with an idea two hundred million dollars upfront or a billion dollars upfront, you slice it up into much smaller checks and feed it into the company every 18 to 24 months. And each time you feed it in, you call this a series of, of funding. And the very first round of funding is called the seed round, or it used to be called the seed round. Now there's a pre-seed round, <laughs> but typically seed round used to sort of like if you visualize it, you know, you put a seed in the ground and, 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 and that gets it started. And then you enter the alphabet. And, and Series A is kind of the, the round after that. But typically, I guess what we mean these days is 
seed round usually refers to like the first round of institutional capital. It's the, f- it's the first bit of money that someone like a VC who manages money on behalf of other people will invest in in the company. And then Series A sort of usually signifies an inflection point. You've reached product market fit or high level of confidence that you're on the road to product market fit and or you're ready to scale your product market fit. Yeah, hopefully that helps. So just to close the loop on how that works, am I right in thinking that with each each successive investment round, the in theory, the, the valuation of the company is going up and the risk of the investor is going down. So for every dollar you invest, you're getting a smaller portion of the business. Is that, I mean, that's the balance you're walking is invest early, high risk, get more of the company, invest later, lower risk, but lower return. Yeah, that- I, mean, I, I mean, like in general terms, yes, but I, I would say the thing you're always trying to balance is what does long-term success mean? And at the earliest stages, one of the things you're trying to think through is like this particular team that I'm backing, how do we make sure that as investors we get compensated for the risk that we're taking, which is very significant at day one? without actually increasing the odds of failure because the founder is so diluted that five or six years into the journey, they own so little of the company that even in the case of a good outcome, it's not good enough for them. And so they they give up or they sell too early for a smaller amount in year five or six versus going the whole way. So it, it, it is a little more nuanced than like just try and get as much ownership as you can up front because what will inevitably happen is that that actually increases the odds of, of, of failure. failure. So that makes a ton of sense. I, I think where I was sort of heading towards, I mean, being in a, in a space, I mean, this is an analytics podcast where we're saying what historical yeah. <laughs> data can we take where we, you know, build a model or crank out something like how is is a, as you're investing in a company moving along, it seems like you have less, you, I would think you have kind of less data to work with. Like where, what does an analysis kind of look like? And you've already, I think kind of alluded to some of it. There's a lot that's much more, I don't want to say quality. I'm doing a horrible job of articulating the question. If anybody wants to help me out or if that's enough of a random <laughs> ramble as I'm subbing in for Mo and ill-equipped, but how does like, what, what do you analyze? How do you make the decision of what to invest, how much to invest and how much you're going to yeah. offer? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and, and it really does depend at the stages you invest. So, you know, I did talk about how there's the C, the A, the B and so on. And, and typically the, the venture investing world is a different, it's a different group and different fund structure and different portfolio construction if you're investing at the seed stage versus when you're investing at C plus where, where both product go-to-market motion, et cetera, like all of that has has largely be, been de-risked. So what are we trying to look for? Well, it, you know, I spend most of my time in pre-seed to, to series A stage. And and one thing that we're kind of uh, is, is like very known from the data, and actually there was a, a, a good thread on this kind of recently that basically looked at a portfolio of a, a fund of funds portfolio that basically looked through to 11,000 investments via funds and 53% I think it was or roughly 50% of all of those investments don't return capital. So that means if we invest a million dollars in the seed round, we get a million or less back from that. That is how we construct our, our kind of models at the beginning when we're raising a fund. We assume half the portfolio will not return capital. That is the kind of failure rate that is expected for venture. But what that means is that the other 50% really have to perform in order to pay back the losses of the ones that don't work out. Plus, obviously, more than that, in order for us to do more than just return people's money to them for for us. And and we do target a three times return. And so what that really means is even at the very beginning when it's, you know, almost impossible to predict, does all of the ingredients of this startup team 
you know, I, you know, product, market, etc., have even the DNA to produce an outcome that could be 50 or 100 times the capital that we invest in, in day one. And, and, it's, and that's, so that's kind of the starting point, I guess, of the analysis. And so it sounds like a lot of the analysis that you're talking about has quantitative aspects to it, obviously, like looking at the, the total portfolio and understanding the 50%, mm-hmm. you know, not expecting the return. But I'm also hearing some things that might sound like there's some qualitative aspects to it and thinking about maybe the team, obviously, like there's there's the confidence in that idea before you get to product market fit and looking at like the addressable market and, and things like that. So how do those two sides come together when you're when you're making some of those decisions? Well, you sort of I don't walk around every day going like, oh, you know, 50% of this portfolio will die. Like I just sort of have in internalized that and and so for so the other side of it i guess we have a bunch of heuristics and every firm will probably or every investor will, will, will basically start to establish a bunch of heuristics that correlate with success in their minds and and that will you know be supported by by data but the problem is you don't have a, a huge volume of, of of data and also there's an issue, I think, with the availability of data. But anyway, one thing for us is, you know, particularly in the context of Australia and New Zealand, which is where I focus my time, it's a total population of 30 million people between the two countries. So that's like the state of Texas. So one of the heuristics we're looking for is, is this addressing a global market? Because if you're starting in Australia, New Zealand, or only servicing Australia, New Zealand, the chances of building a very big business that can 50 or 100x our money is is relatively small or, or almost impossible. Like the, the probabilities are so small that it's it's negligible. So that's one of our heuristics is we're looking for businesses that sell globally from the beginning or don't have to reinvent the wheel on on go-to-market or product for each new region that they go into. So Canva is kind of the iconic example. You throw up the the, the, the site and, and people around the world can become customers. And, and very early in Canva's life, like Brazil emerged as one of like the top three markets, for example. So that's one of the heuristics we we, we live by. The other one is kind of like, is it the founder's life's work? We know that it, these are very long journeys, very difficult journeys. And the really big 50 to 100x outcomes come from, in the case of success, saying no to 100 mil acquisitions or 300 mil acquisitions and really pushing for a very big outcome and and not just pushing as in like having the grit and so on but also not running out of ideas like having an idea of product roadmap that extends beyond you know three to five years you'd be surprised how actually rare that is and 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 how most founders are kind of incrementing from an initial solution to an initial problem but haven't really thought about what the 10-year state of, of that product could be. And what we tend to see is that when something is a product of all of your life experiences and, and passion and so on, like you, you kind of almost have to work backwards from the 10 year vision. Like you have this idea of what this big thing could be and you're actually kind of incrementing back to what is achievable to build you know, in the first 18 months of the company's life. So these are, you know, hopefully, a, like, they're just some examples of, like, a, a, of some heuristics that we've kind of developed that we think correlate with, with long-term success. All right, it's time to step away from the show for a quick word about Pewik Pro. Tim, tell us about it. Well, Pewik Pro is easy to implement, easy to use, and reminiscent of Google's universal analytics in a lot of ways. I love that it's got basic data views for less technical users, but it keeps advanced features like segmentation, custom reporting, and calculated metrics for power users. We're running Pewik Pro's free plan on the podcast website, but they also have a paid plan that adds scale and some additional features. That's right. So head over to Pewik.pro and check them out for yourself. Get started with their free plan. That's Pewik.pro. All right, let's get back to the show. But with with both of those examples, it, as you as you started talking, it had me thinking about if you think about it as, as like data quality, like the the inputs to that. I mean, I'm sure every every pitch you get, it has a hockey stick. It shows the addressable market is the entire world, and it shows that they've got yep. ten years of sort of growth. But like you're that 
that is your is that your starting point of data is what the the founders are giving you, but you have to vet like that's so like where does the is you're looking like the addressable market they're going to give you a number and it's going to be hundreds of millions of yeah. of customers do you take that and say how much do we believe it and need to scale it down or do you wind up going totally independently and saying if given given what i understand they're pitching this is what i see like where do, yeah. where does that and the same thing, I think, for the how long of how much is this? What kind of growth is this? Are they just making up stuff yeah. like they were smoking weed and they just came up with crazy stuff? Or is this a life's work and they've got, yeah, this thing will, will last yeah. forever? Yeah, well, I mean, there's probably two, two separate things. Like one on the market size, like, again, for the stage I invest at, which is very, very early, like you're almost counting on a market emerging that doesn't really exist yet right and again for the kind of outcomes we're looking for like 50 to 100x you know or beyond ideally multiple of capital invested like if i have to kind of get a calculator out to kind of calculate tam it's not big enough right like it should be very back of envelope hey are there 10,000 potential customers for this kind of software in the world? And would they kind of pay $10,000 a year or $1,000 a month-ish for this kind of software? Good yardstick is like, do they do that today? Or do they spend much more than that today because they have humans doing it and actually they would much prefer software does it? These are kind of like the very back of napkin kind of numbers. If, if I need to like drive to precision at pre-seed stage, the tendency is basically <laughs> to feel like it's not it's not big enough it's it's not yeah. big enough unless there's a story around how the market is actually changing behaviors are changing something like that such that what is now a tiny market could actually eventually be a very big market like you know i, I i'm you know when atlassian got started you know i guess bug tracking software was like incredibly niche but bug tracking software became effectively software collaboration software you know software and and that turned out to be applicable to basically any any team any modern team in the world so that's a story of kind of a, a market emerging rather than kind of being obviously con, you know constructed up up front so that's probably the first thing I'd say on kind of like market size and I would say market structure is important too because Venture is really built for businesses that grow very big but very fast. The sales cycle is an important factor. If you're trying to sell something for $10,000 a year but there's a lot of inertia around that sale or it's very expensive to make that sale because someone needs to have three steak lunches and take it to the CIO or the CEO, blah, 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 blah. Like all of that adds up to wow, it could take us three or four years to get our first million dollars or, or, or something. And that, you know, for the most part, doesn't look like a venture-style trajectory. So we're often thinking not just about market size, but also how how readily can you grow traction in, in that market? And then the separate point, I think, is around founders' life work or why is this the, the team to win? And for that... I personally believe you really can't look at what the founder says sort of they'll do in the future. It's actually all evidenced in the past. So very often there will be a, a narrative in the founder's like life story that make, makes this all make sense. So, you know, Mel from Canva, for instance, you know, she was teaching graphic design before she started Fusion Books. Fusion Books was the precursor to Canva. Fusion Books is a yearbook design company. And basically the fundamental like product philosophy or ideas were there. And that was started three or four years before Canva. And so you, you kind of, you know, and even like very little things like, is there evidence of kind of like hustliness? And, you know, she was like selling like, I think, you know, her and Cliff were at, you know, festivals you know putting tattoos on people to kind of like fund their travels and stuff like that you know it's just <laughs> all of these sorts of you know it, it, i know it feels like nebulous and and not really great quality data but it, it it does kind of emerge over and over again these patterns of like why a bunch of different events have 
come together to result in these particular founders starting this particular business. And ultimately, you're, you're placing a bet that these founders have a unique insight into the problem, which makes them better qualified than every other person who's also had this idea to create the most elegant solution. And also, they've internalized the buying behavior Like they understand the world of the customer so well that they can also best predict the best and most efficient channels to acquire customers. Because remember, you've kind of got to get distribution or go to market and product like working in tandem. There are so many amazing products that just never, you know, they just don't get near inflection point because they don't find efficient paths to market. And so it's just finding finding those two in in one founding team which is which is the magic. That's super interesting and I love the idea of that heuristic that you put together and I'm curious you've mentioned that you focus a lot in the seed in the series A round. I'm assuming that the heuristic probably looks a lot different in future stages like you even said like the calculations get different. Does that mean that you have a tendency to like firms or portfolios would focus on certain phases just because you end up with so much evidence and like these stories and this like idea of like the magic ingredients about what makes it successful and that tends to be a focus for different VC areas or firms? Is that way you put it? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely how the market has evolved. Like, and, and particularly the more mature an ecosystem is, the more specialization kind of becomes a necessity. So in the US, you know, you're not, you, you really can't just be a, a seed firm, right? Like you, you you have to almost specialize to, I'm a seed firm, I only do vertical SaaS and I only do, I don't know, like the the, the West Coast. And, and then you'll have kind of like the, the, the same. Uh, and, and even within that, there's pro- that's probably too broad. There's probably like, oh, I only do like infrastructure and dev tools or, or what have you. And that's because really, especially at the early stages, there's only a, actually quite a small amount of capital going. You know, it's usually two to three million, you know, is available really for the investor universe. And so there's a, you know, for the very best companies, like that's, there's a lot of competition to get into those rounds and you really have to have an edge or an angle for why the founders should, should choose you. And usually that comes down to specialization. Like how can you be most helpful other than just the money to a really early stage company? Well, if you're, you know, a dev tools company, you probably really want help with like developer evangelism, introductions to early hires, be a very high quality signal to series A and B investors who also specialize in investing in in that kind of software universe. So that becomes a natural consequence of a very of a developed mature ecosystem. Australia and New Zealand is not is not there yet. And again we're we're addressing a relatively small TAM in 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 terms of 30 million possible people, some tiny proportion of which become founders. And so we feel like we have to be a generalist firm. And by generalist, I mean invest in software, but also other areas like frontier technology, because we need to kind of cast the widest net, I suppose, for finding the best quality ideas and and, and founders. And, And instead, we sort of have specialization emerge within our team. I want to switch gears a little bit to talk about product market fit. Because that's something you hear people talk about all the time, like, oh, we wanted to try to get product market fit. So as you start a company or as you come up with it, the idea that like you're creating a product and then you're trying to find like who's my right customer. But how does that intertwine with sort of like the work that you're doing and the company? And then how do people know they've found it in terms of the data, I guess? I mean, it's the million dollar question, right? And why do you I think, think I'm asking? No, I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really different. In my like, and and I'm going to sort of speak to what I know best. So I, I tend to do most of That's my fine. investing yeah. around enterprise software. So for me, and I couldn't tell you the precise point where something hits, you know, product market fit. But what I I I know for sure is like if you have a rep, like an account executive, who is consistently, as in probably for more, more than three months in a row, exceeding their quota, and this is a, an account exec not including the founder, so like say your first sales hire, if they're more than three months in a row hitting their quota, pour money on that thing because 
and again, my hypothesis here, and it's kind of, you know, I don't have large N here, but, you know, probably a dozen companies, like the reason is as a very early stage startup making your first sales hire, the chances that you have hired like the world's best salesperson for your particular <laughs> um, piece of software <laughs> is very, very low. So you've probably hired an average to poor account <laughs> rep in all honesty. And if they are able to exceed market average quota for that kind of software, you have produced something in the market that customers desperately want such that even if your rep is maybe not articulating it the best they possibly could and your marketing funnel hasn't necessarily brought the absolutely ideal customer into the funnel for them to speak to, et cetera, et cetera. Like if there's such big margins of error all through that, that funnel and there's still kind of outperforming the average rep you have got product market fit and the and and what i see time and time again is like when you start to add more reps your first account executive which you previously thought was an absolute hero and legend of the game and thought you were just so lucky to land ends up becoming one of the poorest performers once you've kind of brought in these other aes who are actually better quality aes which kind of makes me feel really sorry for the first AE, but, um, um, uh, but so that's, well, they had a good, yeah, run. that, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and sometimes, and sometimes the trick there is right is, is again, and this is probably peculiar to enterprise software, like probably the reason why, why rep a was so good in the beginning and, and less good later on when you add more AEs is typically the path in enterprise software is you start with a, a small feature set that a small development team can build. And then you slowly add on more and more features and those features actually take you into a higher price point and a more enterprisey looking customer and enterprise looking customers require to be sold to in it's a much more consultative sale or a problem, you know, solution-based sale. And you need a, a bit more of a skilled AE who can do that. And so usually the, the answer is to just make sure at rep A, who was so good at hitting quota with, with these small accounts, like, sticks to his knitting or her knitting and continues to kind of really, really nail that. But so, look, that's like one very kind of almost strip example, I would say, in in other areas or, or maybe just like one yardstick if you would even want to look at product because a lot of businesses like defer revenue. What is the point of the product, right? Like what is the ultimate point of the product and what kind of product usage would indicate that users were really, really happy so if I give a Canva example, in the early days, you know, the, the hypothesis is that Canva makes it really easy for people to design flyers, invitations, menus for their cafe, whatever. What an initial kind of KPI, well before monetization, that the, the team really looked at was the publish, publish or export kind of equivalent button. Because you engagement in the product alone wouldn't tell you whether you were really solving the problem, right? Like how many times have you spent a lot of time in, in PowerPoint or something like iterating on something and it just looks like crap. And, and so that wouldn't have been a good, good measure. But if you're publishing something, exporting it, sending off a print PDF, whatever, you're happy with it, right? Like it's, it's going to get used. And so that was like a really key indication of customer happiness. And so, yeah, I mean, hopefully those are, two ways of thinking about market fit. No, that's very helpful. Like on, on that example, like to what extent was like, who had, was that Mel or Mel and Cliff saying, we think this is a good KPI and then talking to their investors and saying, this is what we're going to use. It may not be MAUs. It may not be revenue. It may not be new customers. And is there kind of a, and let's pretend we're not talking about that specific example, not trying to uncover, but is there kind of a, a negotiation and agreement where it's like, these are going to be the KPIs. We, as the investors are in alignment with this. And we agree that if we see this kind of growth and success, we think we're on track. And then do you stay on top of that? Like who, how does that dynamic mm -hmm. typically work? Well, I mean, I would say in the ideal scenarios, it's really more of a partnership, right? Like, you know, we're getting together like every couple of weeks or every month. And, you know, as you kind of getting ready to ship products, like, okay, like what does success look like for this product? What do we think? And we're bashing around a bunch of ideas. And usually it takes a, 
you know, a bunch of iterations to kind of like really nail like, oh, this is this is what success would look like for this particular product at this particular stage. Or like our hypothesis is these are our customers and this is why they love us or why they should love us. And what would be the metric that kind of represents that? And 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 rather than being kind of like a KPI where you kind of like, you're bad if you don't hit this KPI, it's, it's really like, <laughs> Hey, this is our hypothesis. This is what we think success would look like. Let's just say that's that's it and we'll report against that and in a month's time like we'll have a discussion about whether you did and didn't hit it and and more importantly why like and and develop new hypotheses and like new experiments or new things that we can do to kind of like incrementally get what we think customer happiness represents up. And very often, you know, maybe we've got it completely wrong around why our customers buy us and then you kind of you know, have to iterate again on what customer happiness should look like. But do you, and so now let's say we're specifically not talking about Canvas, so we're talking about only generic other okay. ones that are not, have not been named. But because if you've got the, the passionate founder who desperately, this is their life's work and this is kind of their heart and soul, mm-hmm. and you're having the ability to kind of renegotiate, this just from, from a broader analytics in general, you get the, Oh, the rationalization. You have the wishful thinking. Oh, we complete, we agreed. We had this hypothesis. This was the KPI we set. Completely missed it. But we think, and they come up with like, do you have a harder time of figuring out when it's the passion and the desire to have it work? Or maybe I'll share my example. I was part of a startup that had a home pap smear test. And we basically, it seemed really promising initially. And then... It really wasn't, but the OB-GYN who invented it, the inventor and a couple other people yeah. really wanted it to, to work. And so it made for that tension. Like, it seems like you have a harder, how much do yeah. you have to toe the line and say, nah, I think you're starting to, this wishful thinking on the explanation. That's not, that's not legit. Well, often it's just, you know, I talked about before, like product and distribution. Like, so you really need to sort of have hypotheses all the way down the funnel like what would customer love look like and also we have to acquire the right sort of customers for what we have our hypothesis that our customers can be really happy about and I do think a very honest empathetic but honest dynamic between your investors and the founders is really critical because you're on the same team right like you should all be wanting the same outcome and you know you're not really just like uh, not to pick on your OBGYN like OBGYN but it's not we're not just investing you to kind of like work your hobby you know like we, we are trying to build a really big business with a really big outcome and find the truth of of what the market wants and what you know we can build I think about it as a truth-seeking exercise and, and try to have very, very honest conversations with founders and just make sure we're aligned on that. And I think the best founders aren't so in love with their idea that they can't admit their hypothesis might be wrong and really testing for that kind of growth mindset almost up front and before investing is important. Probably one of the heuristics, one of the things that you test for, say, right? <laughs> well, just, to, just to make sure, I've, for, for anyone who's cured, the, the HPV vaccine came out right as, as we were. So our, our market kind of like the future market shrunk drastically as our product, but and that's, that's a whole other. And, that, and, and look, yeah. and I think that's a great point because like so much of why perfect simulation around venture is kind of impossible, right? Because there are so many things that can happen over a decade, totally without, you know, not with not within your control or even, you know, foresight, like that can be fatal, right, for, yeah. for the company's <laughs> success. And, and that is no doubt a huge contributor to the 50% that fail. But actually m- more often the 50% failure is actually just found a breakup. It's, it's pretty vanilla it's that's a huge proportion of it yeah so one thing that's sort of come out as we've talked but we didn't really address specifically is like once you invest in a company it sounds like your job is very much not done you're continuing on to work with that company it and it sounds like as you're meeting like maybe it's bi-weekly monthly whatever that cadence is you're having discussions about the metrics of the company about the data behind it to what extent are you 
as a venture capitalist involved in – I mean it sounds like you're sort of shepherding sort of a data culture in a way. I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Like just because of you being involved and they're – you know, you hear stories from people like, oh, I dread this or the best founders are the ones that are able to give these regular updates and really be on top of their data and those kinds of things. But – but it, you know, and you mentioned sort of like let's ideate and hypothesize around what these are, and then how do we experiment? And 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 so like that speaks to like well, we need to have a good data culture or an openness to discussing the metrics. I guess. I mean, I invest in technology, right? So like you know, people kind of self-select into that. I think a, a lot of the time, but it actually rather than necessarily just being essential for an investor or. or it actually becomes essential for the team, right? Like as you as you go from, I don't know, three, four people to 20 to 50 people, coordinating the activities of these people, it becomes really important to sort of have these abstractions, I suppose, of what success looks like without holding too tightly to a particular plan because you do want your people to be autonomous and experiment and, and find their way in a very abstract landscape to a, an outcome. And so, you know, having these kind of hypotheses associated with certain metrics are very good ways of aligning teams on the journey. And so, and often the kind of early hires will become very frustrated if this does not exist, or they'll take responsibility for inserting it into the business if it doesn't you know, already exist. So I'd say it's less of an issue than you you might imagine. No, that's interesting. I feel like it's a huge issue within companies. I'm just fascinated by the dynamic that actually having a good culture between your venture capitalists and the founders is sort of an important thing. I mean, it's definitely when it's not there, it's very frustrating, right? Because we obviously don't work in the business day to day. We're trying to be helpful, but it's very hard to get visibility. Like, well, I'm sure there's things founders do that increase or decrease their confidence, your confidence in them as you progress, right? That seems like a normal yes. relationship's progress or digress. Yeah. So I have a kind of a, a random question for you, and I might be a little bit of a loner or a weirdo on this one, but I often <laughs> fantasize about taking the knowledge I have today and going back to like my old jobs and being like, oh my gosh, like what I would do today <laughs> if I had the knowledge I have now. And so especially curious, you know, like any lesson learned stories, you know, definitely interested in those, but especially in your past and former roles as a product mm. manager. So what things have you learned in your, your recent years and in, in this investment world that you would like to tell your product manager self? I'm very curious about that. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm, I am going to like immediately contradict myself. And I actually think we weren't data-driven enough. It was also 100 years ago. Like, I'm quite old. Um, <laughs> the, the data was... You know, it was still emerging as, you know, all of this stuff we take for granted was like, you know, still very emergent like 13, 14 years ago. So, but yeah, I would say to be much more hypothesis and data driven, I think sometimes I fell in love too much with my ideas. It's really embarrassing to admit that now, actually. And then (laughs) I would say as well, like to be, yeah, like much less emotionally attached to the outcome of experiments and almost like try to make them fail. Like startups are so hard, you actually want to kill ideas faster. And I think as a founder, you get so excited and you want it so much to be real that you try to navigate the path rationally enough to like success when really you almost want to like smoke out all the reasons why it might fail like two, three, five years from now sooner. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. Does that, I mean, specifically putting a two, three or five year, that feels like there is a part of it where you, you want to find the, uh, it's going to, it's going to sound like I'm an MBA. Like it's, you want the hypotheses with the most leverage. Like you want to, you want to, find the ones that successful or not it's going to pay the greatest dividend over the long haul whether that means you stop and pivot sooner so you're course correcting 
or whether you're jumping out of an opportunity and you get a a three month a, a, a extra few months on the competition because you found something yeah. faster. Yeah, it's like you're trying to bring forward like visibility of long term success. Like sometimes, like your very early customers just don't represent a larger market, and you wait like three years, five years, whatever, to realize that actually it's a niche that'll just never be bigger. And, and for structural reasons that, that you can't, you can't change. And you could have probably gotten better visibility on that earlier. If you'd spoken to more of these customers who were going to say no and asked why, or like spent more time, like trying to understand whether that dynamic was going to change or was unchangeable for, for reasons that you can't do anything about rather than like focusing on, on just selling to the kind of converted, preaching to the convert, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and you got, and look, this is super nuanced, right? Because like most of the time you, you do want to try and get people to say yes and, and buy and so on. And so you just, you, you have to kind of hold these two states in, in your head at the same time. But in general, like, I do think I wasted time and I do think a lot of founders waste a lot of time early on avoiding no or avoiding, yeah, when it when there should be curiosity about no as well as trying to get yeses. Well, that seems like a – it's kind of what's endemic within a lot of enterprises. Putting aside the founder or the startup mentality, there's a desire to do exactly that and I'm you're bringing back some memories of – Organizations like large enterprises that have said, "Oh, we're going to have a, you know, an innovation wing or a VC wing," and yeah. it's it's the idea that they're going to do that, and it just it's so hard to take that mindset of where are we heading, find the nose, you know, let's let's have a hypothesis measure the endowment to endowment bias, yeah. right? Yeah, and people fall in love with their ideas, which is very human, and yeah. And they can try to carve it off and say, we're going to have like this kind of in-house VC investment mentality, but then they draw from people who are sort of corporate. I mean, I think there are lots of reasons. I still think it's a really, really helpful kind of mindset for anybody to be thinking that way. It's just, it's really hard to pull off. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of hard to pull off, we have got to start to wrap up. This is so fascinating. I had a whole other avenue of wanting to figure out how you measure the portfolio's performance, but we just yeah. can't go there. Uh, We're so, going to okay. get to it. Sorry. And, but here's my startup pitch. No, <laughs> uh, we do have to start to wrap up. Samantha, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I've learned so much no it's been really fun great questions i own i'm the managing partner of a very small consulting firm which is not something that vcs invest in but i'm still getting so much value out of just listening to you talk about these things and it's been awesome so personally i've gained quite a bit from the conversation i think everyone has but one thing we want to do is go around the horn and maybe share a last call something we found of interest that maybe we'd like to share with our audience uh, Sam, you're our guest. Do you have a last call you'd like to share? Well, I recently read this like profile of Claire Hughes Johnson, who's the COO of Stripe and a bit of a, a legend in, in startup circles. And the, one of the questions was like around what her most contrarian high conviction opinion was. And she says that reading literature is critical to being a high functioning human. And I feel so validated by that because... I believe that too. Oh, well, there you go. Um, um, we're in the Claire Hughes Johnson Club because... I I read a lot of fiction and like did a major in English lit and I'm embarrassed about it because I think I should have done like I don't know data science or something like that <laughs> and um, but I really I really do feel like fiction enriches me and enables me to like run simulations on what different people would do in different circumstances and why people do the things that they do and and like all of that like adds up to 
better prediction around the future, better understanding about people's motivations and therefore better responses to all of that. And so anyway, I just like that has really stayed with me because I've been wanting to feel better about the fact that I don't read enough business books and and English. Well, someone who's always (laughs) looking for good fiction and I've gotten many of them through the podcast. Can you, can you do a follow-up last call and like a book you've, a fiction book you've read in the last two years that you just can't let go of that you would recommend? Oh, the one that's like popping to mind is, is three women. I loved that. And, Oh, I forget the name of, it's a Korean one. That's like a family saga. That was amazing. How can I follow up with like, Sure. 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 Yeah. We'll put them in the show notes. We'll start a little email thread. No problem. Yeah. 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 Let's start the book club. I love it. (laughs) Michael, are you still, uh, yeah, there's, I'm writing things down. It's like three women. Got it. No, there's actually science behind this. We're recording this. Uh, we have a record. (laughs) Fiction. Yeah. But this is important. Fiction actually helps you grow empathy. That's one of the things that fiction does. It's they've they've done studies about this. Not yeah. always, because I read a lot of fiction and mm, <laughs> it's still trying to bust through. That's a lot of fiction too. Your sci-fi fiction doesn't count. But we've got so much hope for you, Tim. And by the way, Tim, why don't you go ahead and do your last call? Um, I could recommend the. I'm terrible at remembering book titles because I, I literally the Ann Friedman Weekly Newsletter. She recommended a book that I'm now reading and it's like weird and delightful but that is not my last call but i will put that book also in the show notes um i think i have done a last call before of the choiceology podcast with katie milkman but i want to call out a specific episode that was about a month or so ago that was called an accidental experiment and it had Stephen levitt and uh Solomon Ezra and Steven Spector. So it was really kind of, I'd never heard natural experiments referred to as accidental experiments. And it does seem like there's a little bit of a distinction, although Stephen Levitt was kind of using them interchangeably, but it was, it was a nice episode talking about some, some examples from history that I was not familiar with of natural experiments. And it did a good job of talking about how natural experiments are, can be, handy and you, you kind of have to really look for them to see if they exist. So I I think that might be kind of a double, I think I've talked about choiceology before. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Okay. Val, what about you? What's your last call? Yeah. My last call, it's um, an article, a medium article from the analytics team at Meta. It's kind of a long title, but it's notifications. Why less is more how Facebook is increasing both user satisfaction and app usage by sending only a few notifications. So yeah, quite a long title, but it opens by saying that this was written by the members of the Facebook notifications data science team, which just thinking about having an entire team (laughs) focused on the notifications part, that was kind of interesting. But one of the reasons why I loved this read is because they talked a lot about how they used user research and they conducted multiple A-B tests and that they were really thinking about the long-term effects of um, what they were putting out into the wild. So not just looking at the short-term A-B test winner, okay, roll with that conclusion, but understanding how the change in frequency of notifications was affecting user behavior. And again, like they said in in that very long-winded title, the relationship with the product um, long-term. And so it was a really robust uh, way at conquering what seems like such a simple question, but is so foundational to the product. And so I actually thought it was a really great read. And yet my Facebook app on my iPad always shows notifications, and yet I open it and there's nothing there. And I want to know names of the people on that team. But I don't know. <laughs> we'll chase them Michael, down. We'll chase them Michael, down. Michael, you have a last call. Sorry. <laughs> it's a little late here. I'm a little loopy. I'm confounding the data because the first thing I do is turn off notifications for all apps. It's just like not going to have that happen. All right. Yeah, I do have a last call. So James Zhang at Instacart recently wrote an article about how they've been transforming their data at Instacart and leveraging DBT and Airflow to manage data transformation. And it's a pretty fascinating article, which I got from, I got some cool things out of reading it. So it's a good read if you're in the data engineering or analytics engineering space at all. It's some, there's some good learnings they've, they got from 
from their work and it was pretty pretty inform informational so yeah i can recommend that okay you've probably been listening and you thought man i'd love to learn more about that or i want to talk to these podcast people uh well we'd love to hear from you there's this great ways to do that you can talk to us through the measure slack group which is a place where we all are or on uh i guess it's x now not twitter and link or linkedin oh we have a linkedin page where you can reach us as well yeah yeah tim none of us are on any of your fancy also ran social media tools like mastodon or blue sky or threads (laughs) or whatever (laughs) so dumb (laughs) anyways it's what a world that's a startup idea uh, social media company, but a good one. Canva is Camp, uh, going to become a social network because everybody already has it. See, there's the. It's on yeah, there. I mean, you got all your art and everything in there, so basically, you need to introduce a social graph, and you're good to go. Be like MySpace all over again. <laughs> you can decorate your page. We need Mo here to, to yeah. speak to that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> Good ideas can come from anywhere. That's what I always say. Uh, Anyways, the point of all that was to say we would love to hear from you, and please do reach out. Let us know. We like to hear from our listeners. All right. Well, thank you once again, Samantha, for coming on the show. Uh, Real pleasure. Felt like learned quite a bit, and it's a cool topic to learn more about, and thank you for spending that time with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And... No show would be complete without a huge shout-out to our producer, Josh Crowhurst. Thank you, Josh, for everything you do behind the scenes to make the show possible. We appreciate you. And I know that I speak for both of my co-hosts, Tim and Val, when I say no matter what series or what your idea is, just remember, keep analyzing. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going with your comments, suggestions, and questions on Twitter at at AnalyticsHour, on the web at AnalyticsHour.io, our LinkedIn group, and the Measure Chat Slack group. Music for the podcast by Josh Crowhurst. So smart guys wanted to fit in, so they made up a term called analytics. Analytics don't work. I love Venn diagrams. It's just something about those three circles and the analysis about where there is the intersection, right? Just didn't, I hit record too late to get any good, good outtakes. Oh, well. That's, sorry. That's going to be your problem. Okay. Tim. Carry on. Who do you think you are? Mr. Big Stuff. There's your outtake, Tim. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Rock flag and hypothesize.